Well, we'll continue our study in the attributes of God as we seek to learn about who God is and uh, so that we might better be able to worship him and to know him. And uh, you'll remember we spent two weeks um, looking at the introduction to the attributes of God. Why should we study and so forth? I'm not going to review a whole lot of that except in one area. The attributes of God have been classified into two different categories. And what are those categories called, or what's some names for those categories? Okay, one each on each side, right. And so communicable means what, Johnny? It can be uh, something that's reflected in us. Yes, right. And so, and incommunicable? Right, or, or infinite, or immutable, those things that we'll never be able to do. So those things are not brought to us. So the incommunicable, it's the absolute being of God. The communicable, it's his personal nature. And we're going to begin, and probably the first of three, uh, studies on the holiness of God. Holiness of God is a good place to begin. Uh, it helps us to understand who this God is that we seek to know. Now... What do we mean when we say the word attribute? It's not, it's not really the best word. Um, maybe an excellency or quality would be another word. Uh, what we mean is to reverently, yet basically, to seek to describe God. I know, already you can say, how in the world can we do that? Thankfully, we have his revelation, right, and the word. And so um, his persuasive characteristics... Um, so that at the end of the day, we can say he is the only holy, uh, immutable, spiritual, living, sovereign Lord. He is Jehovah. He is Yahweh. And these things have been revealed to us. One of the most uh, loftiest descriptions of the majesty and excellency of God is found in that song of Moses. I'll just read it. Read the verse in song, or, uh, Exodus 15 in verse 11. It says, and this is that song right after they've crossed the Red Sea and so forth. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? A god without holiness would be a monster. Because there's nothing to gauge morally what that divine being is doing. It would be more of a devil than a god. And so God is marked by his holiness. In fact, in two places, this is the only attribute of God that's listed three times for emphasis. And where would those places be? Isaiah 6, yes. Isaiah 6, right? uh, Isaiah's vision here, uh, when he comes to the temple and he sees the angels, the seraphim, have each of him six wings, and two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called out to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That actually occurs as well, it's repeated in the New Testament. Does anyone know where that's at? Revelation, yes, absolutely. Revelation 4. Uh, in verse 8 and so a very similar scene and that's repeated again so holiness is unique in this is that the word of God in both the Old Testament and the New Testament communicates uh, with great emphasis the holiness of God 
Amos 4.2, the Lord has sworn by his holiness. Holiness is the crown and beauty of all of his other perfections. For example, his power is a holy power. His wisdom is a holy wisdom. Without holiness, his wrath would be madness or tyranny. But holiness gauges that wrath. It's a holy wrath. It's a holy love. Psalm 145, the Lord is holy in all his works. And God has demonstrated his holiness in his creation. He's demonstrated it as him being lawgiver and judge. The whole moral law, the ceremonial law, the whole sacrificial system points to the holiness of God. Sacrifices every hour pointed to his righteousness. The restoration of man, we see his holiness. In fact, the whole scene of redemption and what needs to take place to reconcile sinful man to a holy God demonstrates his holiness. That he had to send his one and only son to be an atonement for sin. Of course, we'll look at that more later. You see something of the justice of God. It's a holy justice. Yeah, he, he is the judge. He can't just pardon. Well, I'll just excuse, excuse, excuse. No, there has to be payment for sin. And he exacted that payment in his son. So, when we talk about the holiness of God... If we talk about, say, a coworker, well, he's a he's a holy man. What do we mean by that? Typically, if somebody says, "Oh, well, my neighbor, he's a holy roller," what do they mean by that? Typically, they they, they typically mean I'm getting to something here. They typically mean, well, he doesn't. It's a negative. He doesn't drink, smoke, chew, doesn't you know dance, and you know all these like these little marks that man has listed as marks of holiness well he doesn't do all those things he doesn't fit in he doesn't swear he doesn't live a promiscuous lifestyle and so forth but of itself this is merely uh um yeah i mean there's the, you, you could say that about the mormons too so that's not describing holiness um it's it's you can't just point to a lifestyle alone the fundamental characteristic of god himself that so impressed Isaiah, which I just read, is that Isaiah, throughout his uh, prophecy in the book of Isaiah, over 30 times addresses the Lord as the Holy One of Israel. 30 times, more than any other prophet, again and again. In other words, our principal thought concerning God is of a constant, impeccable moral purity blending with his life and power that results in glory of an immeasurable magnitude. It totally sets him apart from anything which would be unholy. Now what would be, what is your response to the holiness of God? As you study, as you read, let's say you open up your Bible tomorrow and you're in Isaiah chapter 6 and you read what happened to Isaiah. Now we could go back there. Do you remember what happened to Isaiah when he saw this vision? fell down did he trip (laughs) sorry (laughs) i mean it's it's more than that but it's just the temp the thresholds trembled and the temple was filling with smoke and and he cried out woe is me i am ruined that was the response of the prophet 
because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And when we study the, the holiness of God, it should bring about in the genuine believer now, the, the true Christian, a reverence, a humble submission, a, 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 an awe that this is the creator of the universe of whom I have a relationship with. It's a conviction of anything that is unholy in my life is magnified because that's what happened to Isaiah. First thing he says, woe is me, I'm ruined. Suddenly his unholiness is what was magnified in his mind in contrast to God's infinite holiness. What would be your response if God was to visibly manifest himself to you? Now, we shouldn't go home looking for this or praying for this, but what would be your response? Now, we know no man can see God and live, right? We know that from Exodus 33, which we looked at in our introduction. Yet, if some type of theophany or personal representation of God appeared to you, or even the glorified Lord Jesus Christ, what would be your reaction? Utter awe, wouldn't it? I mean, your, your unholiness, everywhere where your, where your sin would just be magnified before you. Uh, in Habakkuk chapter 1, it says, O Lord my God, my Holy One, your eyes are too pure to approve evil. Or as the writer to the Hebrews says, our God is a what? Consuming fire. These are the things that would impress us. Those are the things that we would think of. Revelation chapter 12 or chapter 1 verses 12 to 18 you have the picture of the glorified Christ right the vision of John there after the opening introductory verses there's a, a picture of the glorified Christ eyes as a flame of fire and so forth and what happens what does John do that he falls down like a dead man doesn't he he's it's like wow this is too much I'm undone now, if this is the God of uh, the God of the Bible, and I believe that it is, that it's He's holy, He's infinitely holy, more than what we can ever imagine. And the Word of God clearly depicts Him as this. Why do you think it is today in so many churches that there's so little reverence for God? There's something lacking. There's something that's not right. There's something that's askew. When God becomes the, my buddy in the rocking chair, just, you know, right here, just a little bit above me, rather than this chasm of the creator-creature distinction, I submit to you it is because it is not emphasized. It's in the preaching of the word of God. It's in the interaction of the people. It's how the word is applied. There are people, are, it's miscued. The whole seeker-sensitive movement. They're not going to mention your sin being so great and the holiness of God being so infinite and you'd be consumed without the blood of Christ. No, it's all about felt needs. And so the view of the holiness of God, his majestic holiness, his moral purity, is brought down to something that man can relate to on so much lower of a level than what it ought to be. So the nature of God's holiness in general terms, holiness speaks of a perfect, un. Uh, unpolluted freedom from evil, completely unpolluted, completely free from evil. Well, let's talk about the biblical definitions. This whole lesson really is by, uh, that was my introduction to my introduction, I guess. But, uh, it's really just introductory, but I want to look at the two, the Hebrew word and the Greek word as they occur 
referring to God's holiness. The first is the Hebrew word, which is kadosh, kadosh, and um, that uh, means apartness, holiness, sacredness. Um, it comes from the root of the word to cut or to separate, and so you see the, the implication of sanctification, be ye separate, so forth, and so it comes from that root word. In the Old Testament, it can be used as adjective, noun, and verb, speaking of something that is holy as an adjective, or God's holiness as a noun, or to sanctify as the verb form. Uh, the root meaning in the Old Testament is that of purity, set apart or separate from impurity. So it's the idea of separation from defilement. Uh, likewise, the, uh, in the New Testament, a parallel, the parallel word would be hagios, and the root can mean holy ones, holy to sanctify. The root is actually referred, was in our text today, referring to the saints. And so there's interpretive challenges to um, figuring out how it should be transferred, or translated. But it means uh, reverend, worthy of veneration, and so forth. Uh, it's the word that's used in Revelation 4.8, speaking of the incomparable majesty of God. It means also to be set apart for God, or to be set apart exclusively for his, of sacrifices and offerings. It can refer to uh, prepared for God as a solemn rite and pure. In a moral sense, it means pure, sinless, upright, and holy. It's the word that occurs in 1 Peter 1. Be holy, for I am holy. The, the quote from the Old Testament there that Peter writes. So, for example... So the idea of being set apart, now you can see how that applies to us as Christians. We are to be set apart from the world. We're set apart as God's possession. We're set apart unto holiness. And um, the utensils in Solomon's temple, for example, were designated as holy as they were set apart from association to everyday things unto sacred service. So too the Christian is set apart from everyday things to sacred service. Now, an illustration that I read, and I think it's a good one, is a, a pastor goes to purchase a desk to study the Word of God, have all of his books all over it, right? And so he's choosing a desk. He's at the office uh, supply store and so forth. And, and so he finally picks one out, and it's purchased from among all the other desks. That desk is then moved to the pastor's study, and it is set apart now for the ministry of the Word. And so the idea of this word is it's, not, it's what it's consecrated to, not what it has been consecrated from. So it, does, it doesn't matter that it came from an office supply store. What is it used for now is now set apart unto the ministry of the word. And you see the parallel with utensils and all of those other things and even Christians, their very lives. Any questions or comments so far?
Yeah, the, uh, that's a good point. The uh, one application would be, and we're not, uh, you know, I want to be careful here, but with the Lord's table, we're taking ordinary bread and wine, and it remains bread and wine, but when it is prayed over by the minister, it is set apart for that special service in a sense. So it's set apart for the institution of the Lord's Supper. It's still bread and wine. We're, we're not, we don't believe in transubstantiation. Somehow that becomes uh, the body and blood of Christ as a re-sacrifice. Most certainly not. But it is set apart. That's why when it's all done, you know, we don't all go up there and enjoy the juice and the bread and all of that. It's, you know, it's taken away. But it's set apart. Now, it'd be, uh, so it's, that, that might be one example. Well, holiness is essential to God's nature. Apart from it, he cannot be God. Um, God did not choose to be holy at some point. Because if he chose to be holy, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add this attribute of holiness. What's wrong with that idea? He could have been unholy, right. And he can just as easy choose to be unholy. And that is totally contrary to his nature. Uh, very good. God alone is absolutely holy. First Samuel 2, there is none holy as the Lord. No creature can be absolutely holy because all creatures are mutable. So that begs the question, well, aren't angels holy? Trick question. <laughs> sure. Angels are, they are holy, right? But they're not absolutely holy. God alone is absolutely holy. Angels are mutable. We know that from the fall of several angels. Um, in Job 4.18, it says, He puts no trust even in his servants, and against his holy angels he charges error. So their holiness is finite because they're, they're created. They're created beings. They'll never be absolutely holy as God is. They're, they're separate from um, their holiness is finite, separate, separated from his um, essence. God alone is infinitely holy. God perfectly hates all evil in as much as he also loves that which is just. So he hates evil and it is abhorrent to him. God is so holy that he cannot positively will or encourage anyone to sin. Why don't we turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1 and verse 13. Uh, who would like to read 13 to 15 for us? Okay, Johnny. Let no one say that he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So the obvious conclusion from that, sin, God does not tempt anyone to sin. Unholiness cannot proceed from infinite holiness. He cannot throw out sin. He cannot tempt sin. There's no contradiction with God. Sin is a voluntary act of the wicked or of sinners. It's, it's an it's a, it's a act of the volition. Is there unrighteousness with God? Paul asked in Romans um, chapter 9. You know, we're not even going to turn there because that's 
we could easily spend the rest of our time there. But suffice it to say, Paul asks a rhetorical question. Is there unrighteousness with God? May it never be. Absolutely not. Never. Um, God can do no evil himself. There is no defect in his holiness. Reading down just a little further in James 1.17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Catch this. In whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. He does not change. There's no defect in his holiness. It's, he's not more holy one day than the next. It's not, October is not his week month. He is infinitely holy. We could ask the question, what about sin in the world? What is the origin of sin? We're not going to do that on purpose <laughs> right now. We'll address that though in the future. So there's really two basic categories of holiness as we begin to wind down that, 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 that help my thinking some. There's the majestic holiness of God, which what we looked at in Exodus 15, okay? God is distinct. He's transcendent with regard to his character, uh, transcendent with regard to his creation and all of his attributes. His apartness involves all of his being. Listen to Louis Burkhoff. Uh, This is what he said. He said, this is the majestic holiness of God. That, it is, that is his comprehensive, all-inclusive holiness. In this sense, God's holiness includes his exalted spirituality, righteousness, sovereignty, wisdom, wrath, grace, etc. So that man, as a mere creature, is overwhelmed with his awesome, unique presence. His absolute inapproachability, resulting in personal creature sensitivity and abasement. That's the result of the majestic holiness of God. It's suddenly we realize we are so finite and we're a creature in contrast. Secondly, it's the moral holiness of God. It's related certainly to the majestic holiness of God, but this is the moral aspect that really dominates most of the teaching in the Bible, is his moral holiness. It can be claimed that God's moral holiness is the heart of his majestic holiness. So there are three fundamental elements of biblical holiness. And this also helps my thinking as well. Uh, though we can equally, it can, though there's overlap, but there's the moral standard that governs the separation both negatively and positively. What is right, the measure of rightness as an ethical compass. Secondly, the separation from that which violates his moral standard, designated as negative holiness or holy separation and alienation. And then thirdly, we've already touched on it, it's a separation unto. It's that which is a separated unto, that which is in agreement with his moral standard and his positive holiness. It's an ethical conformity. And so the moral standard itself, separation from wickedness and separated unto Um, agreement with that moral standard. I mentioned last time Stephen Charnock has about about 1,200 pages on the attributes of God, of which I have not read all of it, uh, but I have read um, most of what he's written on the holiness of God, and he says this on the holiness of God negatively. The holiness of God negatively is a perfect and polluted freedom from all evil. As we call gold pure, that is not embossed by any draw and based by any dross 
and that garment clean that is free from any spot. So the nature of God is estranged from all shadow of evil, all imaginable contagion. Positively, it is the rectitude or integrity of the divine nature or that conformity of it and affection and action to the divine will as his eternal law whereby he works with the becomingness of his own excellency and whereby he hath a delight and contemplate contemplacy in everything agreeable to his will a long word with old english of it essentially negative holiness compared to positive holiness there it's a it's a, um, a separation on two versus a separation from so with regard to god himself he is his own constant consistent unchangeable standard of righteousness his own pure standard god is independently sufficient in his own moral being uh, he is set apart from anything alien to his purity there is not one speck of defilement or or the faintest stain of impurity in his person as it says in first john 5 that there is in him no darkness at all And so for us Christians, we think, as we wrap things up here, the, um, <clears throat> with regard to us, God's standard of righteousness as a positive holiness is the believer's standard. See, God's standard becomes my standard because I'm his child. That's my father's standard. That's going to be my standard. And so that needs to be your standard. So how does this apply to us in, in, as we live our lives? Well, if God says... He hates divorce. If God says he hates immorality, if God says he hates homosexuality, then can we? Well, I know that's what the Bible says, but I'm going to adjust that. No, we need to conform to that standard of righteousness. That positive holiness needs to become ours, something that we own by virtue of being children of God and believing that his word is infallible. And of course, it's beautifully displayed and the incarnate righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see holiness personified in his earthly ministry, don't we? As it's revealed in the Gospels, we see Jesus righteously dealing with everything that came his way and not sinning and remaining sinless. We are set apart from that which is, um, is anything alien to the moral character of God. Um, and then we are set apart unto that which is in harmony with, harmony with the character of God or positive holiness. Uh, he is inclined toward the nature of God um, in his affections, desire to model out the very character of God, thirsting after godliness. Um, you might think of this first and second greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because God says that's important. That's what we need to do. And you can just go down the list of all these things that ought to, where we ought to conform unto that moral standard. Jonathan Edwards has a great work, I'm sure most of you have heard of, uh, Religious Affections. And he addresses this. This will be my last quote here. I'm going to read a few select quotes as we end here. This is in section three of his work. So the holiness of God in the more extensive sense of the word, the sense in which the word is commonly, if not universally used concerning God and scripture, 
is the same with the moral excellency of the divine nature, comprehending all of his moral perfections, his righteousness, his faithfulness, and his goodness. Skipping down, there are two kinds of attributes in God. The way of conceiving of him, his moral attributes, which are summed up in his holiness, and his natural attributes, which are summed up in his greatness. Skipping down, he says, I now... I now proceed further to say more particularly of the kind of excellency which is the first objective ground of all holy affections is their holiness. Holy persons and the exercise of holy affections and the love of divine things primarily for their holiness. They love God in the first place for the beauty of his holiness or moral perfection as being supremely amenable in itself. Not that the saints, in the exercise of these gracious affections, the love of God only for his holiness, all his attributes are amiable and glorious in their eyes, and then they delight in every divine perfection, the contemplation of his infinite greatness and power and knowledge and terrible majesty of God is present to them. But their love to God for his holiness is what is most fundamental and essential in their love. And he goes on, but you can see essentially what he's saying there is finding the child of God that has now been burned and has these new affections for God will begin to take a liking and a love to the very character of God and be drawn to them and will affect our affections as we seek to serve and glorify him. I had some verses to look at. I think we're going to skip those, but just by way of conclusion, I hope we have just a a little higher view of the majestic holiness of God and what his moral standard is for us. It's very humbling to study these things. We can't wrap our mind fully around them. We know they're declared in the word of God and then to apply those in daily life. And what does this mean for me practically uh, to call sin, sin to, and so forth. I'll end with a quote from Calvin. Men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. Any final thoughts or questions before we close? Okay. Johnny, would you close our class in prayer, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you yet again for who you are. We worship you. We we praise you. We confess together with Isaiah that woe is us.